0: you turn in your Bibles to the first book in that Bible, the book of Genesis, the last chapter of that first book, Genesis chapter 50. Most all of you know, in fact, some of you have even used this online auction called eBay. I have purchased things over the years. Millions of transactions have taken place where people buy and sell just about anything and everything on eBay. Um, Every now and then, odd things show up for sale, and uh, people have made note uh, note of that and lists of all the weird things eBay has sold, but here's a few standout things. Um, A few years back, a grilled sandwich sold on eBay, a grilled sandwich, some of you saw that, with the face of the Virgin Mary. It sold for $28,000 on eBay. Because supposedly the little sandwich had magical powers and was unaffected by mold for over a decade. That was what they claimed. So somebody dished out 28 grand. Then there was the haunted rubber duck that sold on eBay and it purportedly had the power to possess children. Now who on earth would ever want to buy that? Right or, or for that matter, who would ever want to sell it? Who would want to let that go and get out into the public and do damage? But it sold on eBay for $107,000. Then there was the case of a 10-year-old girl from England who tried to sell her grandmother on eBay. <laughs> and the little ad she took out on eBay said about her grandmother. She is annoying but cuddly. (laughs) Of course, eBay had to take it down because it breaches regulations for human trafficking. You can't sell people on eBay, even your grandmother. (laughs) But perhaps the most bizarre was a decade ago when a man got on eBay and offered his life for sale. The ad ran like this. My name is Ian Usher and I've had enough of my life I don't want it anymore you can have it if you like whatever it is it's all going up for sale in one big auction everything I have and everything I am on the day that it's sold and settled I intend to walk out the front door with my wallet in one pocket and my passport in the other nothing else And then get on the train with no idea where I am going or what the future holds for me. What ended up happening is Ian Usher was selling his life. He sold his home along with it, beat up furniture along with it, an old car along with it, a small motorcycle. He sold all of that for $305,000 and he moved to Australia. What he said is that his wife had left him six years into their marriage. She divorced him. And he said that he wanted to remove all reminders of his life with his ex-wife. Now, there's a lot of ways you can deal with rejection. This has got to take the cake. I just want to sell my life. You can have it, all of it. I suppose if there could have been one person in the Bible who would have said that, it would be Joseph. Because he had so many bad things happen to him over the course of his life. One bad thing after another. His brothers hated him. The Midianites sold him. Potiphar jailed him. His cellmates forgot him. But God promoted him. It's an incredible story. And it's an incredible story on a number of levels. Here's just one of them. Of all 50 chapters in the book of Genesis, all of them together, one-fourth of the entire book of Genesis is devoted to Joseph. That in and of itself is amazing, given the fact that God uses ten words to describe the creation of the universe. Genesis 1-1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's ten words. Then he gives two chapters to fill in some of the details of those ten words, but 13 chapters in the book are devoted to Joseph, his tragedies and his triumph. It's an incredible story. It's a rags-to-riches story. It's about how the son of an obscure, poor, Israelite herdsman goes from total obscurity to become the second most powerful man in Egypt, thus in the world. An incredible story. And the story introduces us to one of the notable traits of God, and that is His providence. God's providence. We say that God is provident. When we talk about God's providence, we're not talking about His miraculous works. A miracle is where God intervenes natural law, but providence is where He cooperates with natural law to effect a supernatural result. In providence, God is manipulating ordinary events to affect an extraordinary outcome. And besides all that, Joseph proves to us that no matter how bad you had it growing up, no matter how you were mistreated or mishandled or misjudged growing up, you can live well now. Joseph shows that. It's an amazing story. Now, a little quick thumbnail sketch about Joseph's background. His family was messed up. Big time. The family of Joseph with his father Jacob and his eleven brothers, it was, to say the very least, a dysfunctional family. On a high level. First of all, his dad had four wives, not four in a row, four at the same time. So that's bad. Then his brothers get involved in all sorts of sinful activity, including incest, rape, murder, and, with Joseph, human trafficking. When we get to chapter 50, last chapter in the book, it is the crescendo. It is the high moment. It is after Jacob's death. Their dad has died. They buried him. They're back from the funeral in Canaan. They're back in Egypt. And now these brothers are really paranoid. Verse 15 of chapter 50 introduces us. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded us, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph... I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now, please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. This is the finale of the entire Joseph story. All of the tension that begins in chapter 37 and grows and mounts comes to its high point here until finally it is resolved. And through Joseph's forgiveness, it is relieved. So the scene begins in fear, but it ends in forgiveness. And there's one little phase in between. So we're going to begin and look at the three stages that Joseph's brothers go to to bring resolution. First of all, fear. They're afraid of something. They have a baseless, I would add, a baseless fear. Verse 15 says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father, that is Jacob, was dead, they said, now they're talking among themselves, they have a conversation, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. This is their guilt speaking. The whole turn of events with Joseph has been odd to these brothers. They're uneasy with how it has come down. Joseph was sold by them. They captured him, put him in a pit because they were jealous, sold him to Midianites who dumped him in Egypt. But everybody thinks Joseph is dead. Jacob thinks he's dead or thought he was dead. The brothers thought he was dead. Come to find out. He's not only dead, he's very much alive and he's large and in charge he is in fact the second most powerful human being on the planet in charge of the economy that is controlled at that time by Egypt so on one hand it's sort of like a fairy tale ending for these boys they are rescued by Joseph they're saved from hunger they're provided for and they are now protected by him on the other hand There is now one person in the world that controls their future, and that is their brother, whom they sold years ago. So he's the guy in charge. He can kill them if he wants to. They are in his debt completely, and at any moment he could rescind his favor and protection. So they're scrambling. They're thinking, well, perhaps dad's life was a buffer. While dad was alive, Joseph isn't going to retaliate because... Poor old dad has had enough heartache. He's not going to add to that. He's going to wait till he's dead. Now he's dead. Funeral's over. We buried him in Canaan. We're back now. Now the chief impediment to that revenge by our brother is taken away. We are completely vulnerable before our brother Joseph. Dig a little deeper in verse 15 and you'll notice that these brothers feared two things. First, they feared Joseph's personal emotion. Look at how they put it. Perhaps Joseph will hate us. The word hate in Hebrew is the word satam, which means to bear a grudge. It speaks of a growing resentment and bitterness. They're afraid of that. Something has been growing inside the heart of our brother Joseph all this time. So they're afraid of his personal emotion. Also, notice they're afraid of Joseph's possible action, for they say, and he may actually repay us for all the evil we did to him. The word actually could be better translated, fully. And he may fully repay us for all the evil which we did to him. In other words, our brother Joseph has been nursing a grudge all these years, and now he's going to give full vent to that hatred and those feelings in his heart. All I can say at this point is a guilty conscience is an unbearable load. When you carry around with you all the junk and stuff from years past, your failures, what you did, and you carry that, it becomes that guilty conscience. It is a heavy load and sometimes too heavy to bear. Psalm 38, verse 4, the psalmist said, My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. And the reason that it's so heavy to bear is that a guilty conscience needs no accuser. Wherever you go, you carry that conscience with you. It is its own accuser. You start filtering everyone and every action through the viewpoint, the lens, the filter of all that guilt. It can crush you. Charles Spurgeon said, I'd rather bear any affliction than be burdened with a guilty conscience. So they're viewing Joseph now through that guilt. They're looking at him and they're listening to him and they're seeing all of that through their own personality and their own action. They're projecting. You've heard that term before, The people project things on other people. You see, they're worried that Joseph is going to get rid of them because they once tried to get rid of him. So they are seeing Joseph through the lens of their own personality. And their conversation in verse 15 reveals more about them than it does about Joseph. And whatever you project onto other people tells more about you than it tells about other people. Shakespeare said, Suspicion always haunts the guilty mind. You know how many years it's been since they did this to Joseph? Forty. Between chapter 37 and chapter 50... Four decades have gone by. For 40 years, they have been carrying that load of guilt, unattended to, unresolved, until this moment. And that's because guilt distorts your reality. You don't see clearly. When you're around people, you assume the worst, and you impose the worst possible motives. I wonder why he said that. I know why they said that. That's because you're just... That's you. And they're wrong. It's not reality. They think Joseph hates them. That's not true. Joseph loves them. They think Joseph wants to kill them. Joseph doesn't want to kill them. Joseph is going to say, I think you guys need to be alive to preserve your life. They think Joseph is unforgiving and unrelenting. And that's not true. He's forgiven them five chapters ago. They're still carrying the load. Guilt upon the conscience is like rust upon metal at first the rust just discolors the metal but after a while it starts creeping into it and eventually it eats out the very heart and the substance of that metal it rots it from within guilt will do that to the human heart so they come with this fear a baseless fear the second stage is a fabrication a blatant fabrication They're going to say something that their dad supposedly said that is not true. Verse 16. So, they sent messengers to Joseph. Mark that. They're so paranoid, they don't even show up themselves. They send a team ahead of them. Messengers to Joseph saying... Before your father died, he commanded us, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they have done evil to you. Now, please forgive the trespass, listen to how they put it, of the servants of the God of your father. You don't want to hurt God's servants, do you? And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Now, Jacob, their dad, may indeed have actually said these words to them. But there's no record of it. There's no record in all of the scriptures up to this point that Joseph ever actually gave the eleven brothers this message to tell Joseph. And don't you think that a message this important would be told eye to eye? Would have been given by Jacob himself. In fact, if you were to go back one chapter, not now, but chapter 49 of Genesis, one of the great chapters of the Bible, all of the boys, all 12 men, are gathered around the deathbed of Jacob. And in that chapter, Jacob gets very direct with all 12 boys. He is unafraid to call out their past sins, he is unafraid to predict their future. And Jacob, the old man, before he died, he knew his boys. He knew the disposition of these eleven and that you, you can't trust them with a message this important. They had proven to be liars throughout his life. So, Jacob, if he really did say this, would have said this privately to Joseph, or in the very least publicly when they were all gathered around his deathbed in chapter 49. So, I believe this is a lie. It's a fabrication. Which means, if it is indeed a fabrication, what it means is, they're using their dead father as the fall guy. They're using their dead dad as the scapegoat. They're throwing him under the bus, effectively. They're saying, you know, our dad's last dying wish was that you let bygones be bygones. So this is their collective personality. This is their group speak. This is who they are. They have had mercy shown to them. They have been lavishly treated by Joseph up to this point and by Pharaoh of Egypt. They have been relocated from the land of Israel, who was suffering famine, to the land of Goshen, a very lush place in Egypt. They have been given meals. They have been given provisions. They have been given protection. And they have already seen the error of their ways and confessed already to lying all of these years. But, old habits die slow. Or as a friend of mine says, people change, but not that much. (laughs) These boys have changed, but not that much. They still are who they are. They're paranoid, they're opportunistic, they want to save their own hides, that's what all this fabrication is about. Because they said so. He's going to kill us, he's going to repay us. So they come up with this lie. In Proverbs 29, verse 25, the author says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. That one proverb contrasts Joseph and his brothers. The fear of man brings a snare. That's his brothers. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. That's Joseph. It's like these guys lived on two completely different levels. Joseph lives... And always lived on the but God level. He's always looking for God in the picture, no matter what happens to him. Not these gods. I want to show you something. Go back five chapters. Go back to chapter 45. Just for a few moments, I want you to look at the very first time the prime minister of Egypt, Joseph, their brother, discloses to them that he is their brother, who's not dead but is alive. It's a fun scene. Chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph, his brothers are standing before him. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Now you've got to think his brothers are going, what is going on? Who is this guy weeping? Watch this. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. In other words, this was their great uh uh-oh moment. I'm Joseph. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Not good. then... Joseph said to his brothers, verse 4, Please, come near me. Now they're really going, uh-oh. So they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Uh-oh. <laughs> but watch this. Watch it. Look, look at the different level Joseph lives at. Verse 5. But now, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God... Sent me before you to preserve life. Wow. For these two years, the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. And you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. That's his level. That's Joseph's level. The but God level. He always lived on, well, this is bad, but God. Okay, they sold me as a slave, but God. Okay, now I'm in jail. But God, that's how he lived. Not these 11 brothers, especially the oldest 10. Benjamin was another story, but... They didn't live on that but God level. They lived on the but we level. But we. For example, Joseph told us his dreams, but we resent him. Joseph has come to give us a message from dad, but we despise him. Here comes little Joseph in his technicolor coat. But we will show him. We will sell him. Now... Years later, standing before the prime minister of Egypt, it's exactly the same. Joseph is the prime minister now, dad is dead, but we will outsmart him. They come up with this fabrication. Sir Walter Scott once remarked, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when at first we practice to deceive. And so what do they do? They send messengers, first of all. And then after the messengers come, because, you know, once the word gets out, now they come and they get all grovelly before him. They come down, they bow down to, dude, we'll be your slaves, man. We'll serve you forever. This is called self-preservation. That's all it is. They want to save their hide. Satan was accurate when he said to God something true about human nature. He said, skin for skin, yea, all that a man has will he give for his life. When it comes down to it, Joseph's going to kill us. Let's come up with this lie, and maybe he'll spare us. So from baseless fear to a blatant fabrication, the third level is the best level, and that is their brother's forgiveness. So there they are. Can you picture them? They're groveling before him. Their heads are downcast. They say, we'll be your servants, we'll be your slaves. And they expect to look up and see a vengeful, fuming ruler who's going to do something bad to them. They look up. And they see the prime minister of Egypt, their brother Joseph, weeping. There are tears in his eyes, verse 17. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. This is a sensitive guy. He cries a lot. Chapter 45, he was crying. Before he revealed who he was, he had everybody go out and started weeping loudly. Now he's crying again. Well, what is he crying for? Is he crying for himself? His tears aren't for himself. You're going go, man, you guys were really bad to me. He's not holding on to that. He's crying for who? Them. He's weeping because he sees their torment. He's weeping because he knows their scheming. He forgave them long ago. And now he repeats that promise and he quells their fears. Verse 19, Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Why do you say that? Because they were what? Afraid. They were afraid. He saw that. He saw their fear. Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. I'll explain that in a moment. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. Having heard that, here's the question I want to bring. Here's the question. How is it? How does love, forgiveness, come from the heart of somebody who has been so mistreated like Joseph? How can... Kindness, compassion, forgiveness, love. How can that be cultivated in, in a person who has been hurt, mismanaged, misaligned, lied about, gossiped about for years? How, how, can, how can that be? The answer is found in his answer. His answer to them. Two verses that I just read. And because these two verses, Joseph is giving his theology on pain and suffering. It's all in just two little verses. It's very, very profound. This is what Joseph believes about God. This is what Joseph believes about life, about his life. This is what Joseph believes about pain and suffering. All put into two neat little verses. This is Joseph's theology on suffering. It can be divided into three main points. Number one, God is in charge. God is in charge. Not me, not anyone. God is in charge. Because he says, am I in the place of God? I'm not in charge. God is in charge, not me, not anyone. Am I in the place of God? Now, some rulers actually think they are in the place of God. Some politicians think they're in the place of God. Some kings and rulers have thought, well, I'm sort of godlike. I'm in the place of God. Now, in one sense, they're right. In one sense, they really are in the place of God. Because young Daniel said to King Nebuchadnezzar on the throne of Babylon, he said, the most high rules in the kingdom of men, but he gives it to whoever he wills. And then Paul in Romans 13 said, let every soul, that's you and me, you have a soul, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Remember that with your politicians. And he says about those rulers, For he is God's minister to you for good. What Joseph means when he says, Am I in the place of God? is, Look, guys, I may be the prime minister, but I'm not God. I'm a servant of God too. I'm a slave of God too. Our problems begin... When we forget that God is in charge. When our problems begin when we try to push God off the throne and we want that place. We're going to call the shots. I'm large and in charge. Paul said this, and he asked a question. I'm going to have you answer. Paul said, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Now you answer Who has ever become God's counselor? Be honest, because the true answer is you have. And I have. We've counseled God. Oh, maybe not out loud, but we've thought that. In our prayers we have. Now, God, this is what you ought to do. Or, you know, God, if, if you had a window here, you had a chance. If you would have just listened to the way I prayed about this, it would have been perfect. You didn't do it. You blew your chance. You've counseled God. You have thought he has made mistakes in one case or another. When you feel like things are out of control and you kind of want to push God off that seat of his throne and you want to occupy that and call the shots, your problems will mount. Joseph believes God is in charge, not me, not anyone. Second thing he believes in his theology is that God uses bad events to bring about good results. God uses bad events to bring about good results verse 20 he says, but as for you, you meant this for evil. I'm not letting you guys off the hook. You had evil intentions. You meant this for evil against me, but God meant it for good. What's the good? In order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. He has a clear understanding that God is at work, that God is behind the scenes, that I can trust God for the outcome. That's called providence. God works providentially. No matter what the intention of people, whether good or bad, God's going to bring about his own ultimate end. So Joseph is looking at his brothers realizing, I believe God has a plan for you men. And that is, you need to survive. It's crucial that you live, not die. Why? Because I understand that God has a plan for a nation He wants to develop. And for Him to enact that plan of the nation, He has to enact that plan on the leaders of that nation. And that's us boys, the twelve tribes of Israel. That they were transported from a land where there was no food to Egypt, a place where there was plenty of food. They were given a section of the land, the land of Goshen. So that for the next 400 years, they could go from a 70-person family to a nation of 2 to 3 million. That was God's plan. Why? Because God wanted a nation on the earth to witness to His glory and eventually bring the Messiah who would be the Savior of the world. Joseph sees the big picture. Not all of it, but part of it. That God has a plan to save many people alive, so you guys need to be alive, because you're going to be the nation that God is going to use to put on the earth. That nation will bring the Messiah. Joseph simply sees his suffering as part of the plan. So if my suffering means that a nation can be preserved, I'm in. Now Joseph's story, that we have just read and considered, Joseph's story can be summed up, in one verse in the New Testament, you know it well. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. You know that verse? Paul said this. You know it. Paul said, And we know. Not we think, we hope, we cross our fingers, maybe. We know that all things work together. Not some things, not most things, not good things, not just the things I've prayed about. All things and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. Don't you love that verse? It's what R.A. Torrey called a soft pillow for a tired heart. And how many times I've laid my heart on that verse for repose. All things. All things. All things. William Newell says dark things, bright things, happy things, sad things, sweet things, bitter things, times of prosperity, times of adversity. We know that all things. What are the next two words? We know that all things work together. Two words, one word in Greek, Soon ergeo" is where we get our word synergism or synergy. And synergism is the interaction and cooperation of two or more things. Synergism means the working together of various elements to produce results that are greater than the sum. So that things by themselves may be bad, but when you put them in combination with other things, the result can be very, very good. We see this happen in the natural world. You can take two substances that are normally harmful, but in right combination, they're beneficial. Example, sodium in its pure form is not good for you. Can hurt you, can kill you. Chlorine, if you sniff chlorine, you die. If you mix sodium and chlorine in the right combination, now you have sodium chloride. That's table salt. Yum. (laughs) Two bad things in right combination can be beneficial. So, God is able to take all of those poisonous, toxic things in life, good things, bad things, and bring divine synergism to it so that the result is good. Which means, you better be very careful what you call bad. Well, why do bad things happen to people? Why did that bad thing happen to me? Be careful, that bad thing may actually be something very good in a very clever disguise. I'll give you an example from our own lives. We have a good friend, uh, an acquaintance of ours, lives in Florida, who recently got in a a Paul Hackenberry, got in a motorcycle accident. I saw the pictures of him in the emergency room, didn't look good. You look at them and go, that's bad. But they did x-rays and MRI scans, and, you know, when you have a head injury, you kind of look at not just the head but the neck, right, cervical spine, clavicle, lower thora- or upper thoracic and, and so they're x-raying him doing MRIs and they discover in the upper thorax is a nodule they just picked it up on the MRI and they found out that was cancer but it was in its early stage so they could treat it and he'd be fine and so this accident may have saved his life something that is bad has turned out by God's providence to become good So, Joseph believes, Joseph's theology of pain and suffering is that God is in charge, not me, not anyone else. God uses bad events to bring about good results. And, finally, God uses people to help other people. That's verse 21. Look at it. He says, Now, therefore, do not be afraid. Now, get this. I will provide for you. I the kid that 40 years ago you put in a pit. I. The kid you resented all your life. Me. That guy that you said, I'm selling him to the Midianites, Get rid of him. Kill him. This guy will provide for you. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them. And he spoke kindly to them. You see what Joseph is saying is, look, your act was an evil act. What you did was wrong. But, if you wouldn't have done that, then I wouldn't have been sold to the Midianites. And if I wouldn't have sold to the Midianites, then I wouldn't have gone down to Egypt. If I wouldn't gone, hadn't have gone down to Egypt, they wouldn't have thrown me in Potiphar's house. If I wouldn't have been in Potiphar's house, uh, I wouldn't be falsely accused by his wife of something I never did. And if I was never falsely accused of something I never did, I wouldn't have gone to jail. And if I wouldn't have gone to jail, I never would have met those two guys who had dreams. And I told them what their dream meant. And they forgot about me for a couple of years. But then they remembered And if that wouldn't happen, then I wouldn't have been in Pharaoh's house to interpret his dream. And if that wouldn't happen, I wouldn't be the Lord of all of Egypt, but I am. Because God took all of those events and wove them together. And now, boys, I'm here to help and provide for your future. How's that for gracious love and forgiveness from a heart that has been mistreated year after year? All of that to say that God will use your suffering to help somebody else who suffers. Please don't let your suffering ever go to waste. In the very least, God can use your time of suffering and your lessons to help somebody else who's going to go through that. That's what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 1. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When others are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given to us. So... When we are weighed down, speaking of we apostles, we, Paul, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, when we are weighed down with troubles, it is for your benefit and salvation. I'm not going to waste this. God's going to use this. I want to close with a little article I found, a hypothetical situation. This is written by Jonathan Haidt, a New York psychologist, New York City, attached to a prominent university. This is what he says. Imagine that you have a child and for five minutes you are given a script of what will be that child's life. You get an eraser. You can edit. You can take out whatever you want. You read that your child will have a learning disability in grade school. Reading, which comes easily for some kids, will be laborious for yours. In high school, your kid will make a great circle of friends, then one of them will die of cancer. After high school, this child will actually get into the college they wanted to attend. While there, there will be a car crash, and your child will lose a leg or go through a difficult depression. And go through a difficult depression. A few years later, your child will get a great job. And then lose that job in an economic downturn. Your child will get married. But then go through the grief of a separation. This is the script of your child's life, and you have five minutes to edit that script. Question, what would you erase? Wouldn't you want to take out all that stuff that would cause them pain? He continues, I'm a part of a generation of adults called helicopter parents. Because we're constantly trying to swoop into our kids' educational life, relational life, sports life, etc., to make sure no one is mistreating them, no one is disappointing them. We want them to experience one unobstructed success after another. Then he continues. One Halloween, a mom came to our door to trick-or-treat. Why didn't she send in her kid? Well, the weather's a little bad, she said. She was driving so he didn't have to walk in the ring. But why not send him to the door? Well, he had fallen asleep in the car, she said, so she didn't want to have to wake him up. I felt like saying, why don't you just eat all his candy and get the stomach ache for him too? (laughs) Then he can be completely protected. If you could wave a magic wand... If you could erase every failure, every setback, suffering and pain, are you sure it would be a good idea? Would it cause your child to grow up to be a better, stronger, more generous person? Is it possible that in some way people actually need adversity, setbacks, maybe even something like trauma to reach the fullest level of development and growth? One question that only you can answer as we close. How big is your God? The God you say you serve. The God you say you love. The God you say you're committed to. How big is that God? That God big enough to take the bad things of your past and weave them together with all the things in your life and produce something of great value and great beauty at the end. Is he big enough to do that? That's the God that we're served. That's the God that gives us those promises. That's the God who did this for Joseph. Is your God that big? Can you trust Him right now in perhaps the worst point at your life? And say, Lord, but God. Not but me, but we, but Him. But God. Yeah, but but God. But you don't, but God. What level are you going to live at? Their level, these beloved brothers, or the level Joseph lived at? But God sent me here to preserve life. Father, you are a good God. We confess that. We thank you for it. You know our weakness. You know our humanity. You know our frame. You know how easily we get upset when somebody upsets us. You know how quickly we are to retaliate or cherish thoughts of doing it. You know how human we are. You know how sinful we are. It's why Jesus came to this earth, to pay a price, to redeem us to you. And Lord, you have made a covenant with us, not only to forgive us of all of our sins, but also to take every part of our lives, everything that happens to us, with us, and, and bring about, effect in the end, your plan and your purpose For our greatest good and for your highest glory. Lord, some of us are suffering. For some of us, it's legit. We're going through things that, like Joseph, are alienating and very painful. Traumatic events. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. I pray, Lord, that this message will have enabled us to peek behind the curtains just a bit and say, Ah, but, but God... Is doing something. Don't know what, but I can't wait to find out. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from Skip Heidzig of Calvary Church. How will you put the truths that you learned into action in your life? Let us know. Email us at mystorycalvarynm.church. At and just a reminder you can support this ministry with a financial gift at slash give. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.